since the beginning of the year, we have been uh, systematically working our way through the m most fundamental uh, concept of all the different Buddhist traditions, the Four Noble Truths. So uh, we talked about the First Noble Truth, which is um, being aware of the innate distress, emotional uh, challenges that occur when you're alive, and the confusion that comes about when we're trying to sort out who we're supposed to be in a particular situation and how the world is supposed to be. This is called dukkha. It's the first noble truth. Second noble truth is understanding how dukkha comes about in the context of two different um, insights. One of them is into the nature of craving, which is an instinctual drive that we're all subject to. Uh, a felt sense of urgency that either wants is attracted to and wants pleasant experience, and for it to continue to be pleasant, um, uninterrupted for the rest of our lives, or to avoid unpleasant experience, to never have it happen, or if it does happen, to get rid of it as soon as possible and never be exposed to it again. So that's craving. It's one of the aspects of that uh, creates the distress. And the other is clinging, which is associated with the uh, confusion I mentioned. Clinging is what happens when the mind becomes attached to or identified with a particular belief or expectation or self-identity about what's happening. Buys into that. Now, obviously, we have to have certain kinds of understandings, expectations, beliefs in order to function in the world. But it's the degree to which we are fixated on them or enchanted by them. That's where the, the confusion comes about. So understanding the nature of craving and clinging is the uh, fundamental task of the second noble truth. The third noble truth is realizing liberation from craving and clinging, from dukkha. And this liberation can either be, uh, well, typically is momentary. The mind is not particularly um, caught up with any kind of distress and confusion, peaceful and clear, and life is enjoyable at that moment. But a good bit of the time, the mind is troubled. The liberation is being freed up from that craving and clinging, the ultimate goal in the, in the Buddhist tradition is the experience of nirvana, the unconditioned. Uh, this is the transformative experience that is described in uh, the early teachings of Buddhism. The fourth noble truth is what's called the Noble Eightfold Path. And this talk is going to be an overview of the Noble Eightfold Path, because that's if the first three are 
kind of aspirational. It's how you know we we aspire to understand dukkha. We aspire to understand craving and clinging and be liberated from it. We aspire to experience that liberation. But how do you actually make that happen? The first three are really kind of concepts. The fourth noble truth, which is called the Noble Eightfold Path, is how you actually make that happen. And so what I'm going to do tonight is provide an overview of the uh, Noble Eightfold Path. And then for months of talks afterwards, we're going to systematically go through each one of the um, um, elements or, or categories of the Noble Eightfold Path in more detail, more thoroughly. Because I think it's, it's important to understand that. Now that might seem, you know, how, why would it take months to go through basically eight different categories? Well, the seventh category is mindfulness. And mindfulness is the key to the whole operation. Uh, and at that point, we're going to kind of veer off and review what are called the four foundations of mindfulness, which is a really, really important concept in um, Buddhism. So, let me continue with my overview of this uh, system. First of all, I'm going to... Um, well, let me just say this. According to the tradition, this is the first talk that the Buddha gave after his awakening. Uh, contemporary scholarship kind of says, I don't think that it came out that clearly, that comprehensively, first time he said anything about it. I think it, it ended up emerging out of 45 years after his awakening of teaching people what he had experienced. So this is a really elegant um, conceptual structure. And uh, I want to emphasize that. I would consider the Buddhist, I've said this before, I've considered this person we call the Buddha arguably the first psychologist in human history. Why would I make that claim? Well, during that time on the planet, and to a large extent on the planet today, human experience is organized around the notion of some kind of supreme being. Um, Brahma, in the time of the Buddha, could be uh, Yahweh or God or Allah, although Allah is not person personified at all. Allah is, is uh, basically uh, an alignment with uh, what is righteous in the world. Uh, uh, but uh, the Buddha said that that kind of attitude is not helpful. And he created a different way to understand things. It's much more psychological. 
So before I go into that, I want to read a quote that I downloaded from uh, Wikipedia about the Noble Eightfold Path. Pali term, Arya Atanga, Atangika, excuse me, Maga, is typically translated in English as Noble Eightfold Path. This translation is a convention started by the early translators of Buddhist texts into English, just like Arya Saka is translated as the Four Noble Truths. However, the phrase does not mean the path is noble, rather that the path is of the noble people. In Pali, Arya means enlightened, noble, precious people. The term Maga means path, while Atangika is, means eightfold. Thus, an alternate rendering of Arya Atangika Maga is eightfold path of the noble ones, or the eightfold Arya path. Now, um, before the time, before the Buddha came along, um, the predominant understanding of how to be spiritually successful was interpreted by the Brahmin priests, certain rites and rituals, and certain customs that you were supposed to align with. You were born into a particular clan or caste, and you had to follow the the rules, the cultural norms of that caste in order to progress spiritually. Um, and the Brahmin priests interpreted it and passed that on to the population. Now the Buddha said that, and this, and this is what made people noble, was their adherence to their clan culture, right? And of course, there were cult, there were clans that were born noble to begin with. Now, the Buddha changed that. He said what makes a person noble is not the clan they were born into, but their um, ethical stance, how they lived. And this is reflected in what's called the, the virtue uh, aggregate of the Eightfold Path. So, spiritual progress became personal and psychological rather than cultural. Really important to understand that. Um, and not determined by a hierarchical sociocultural system. This is very similar to what Martin Luther did. Catholicism at the time of Luther was pretty corrupt. People could buy their way into heaven for a fee, right? Um, and Martin Luther objected to that. He started a Protestant movement, and it's pretty strong today. So that's a very hierarchical system. Contemporary Buddhism can be pretty hierarchical too. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that because I'm going to talk about uh, um, what we call secular Buddhism which sets aside that hierarchy. So, this process of liberation from dukkha, the third noble truth, is something that you develop. It's a skill set, a craft, if you will. 
So Stephen Batchelor is uh, a, a, an author and a teacher who I admire and has a strong influence on me. He's written several good books. He's called this system the Ennobling Eightfold Path rather than the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, during the time of the Buddha and up until, you know, the 20th century, I would say, um, a person's life was um, much more simple than it is now. Um, but the onset of technological development transformed the world, not just human culture, but it's transforming the, the environment in profound ways, in fact, we now um, um, have a, a different name for uh, uh, this. It's the anthropo, Anthropocene Era, uh, um, which means that the history of the Earth is now defined or understood in the context of the impact that humans have had on the on the planet and will continue to have on the planet for a long long time so things are very different now and i've talked about this often this is the most radically transformed period of time in human history and it's getting more and more intense uh, right now there's a wildfire in the panhandle of texas it's largely attributable to the kinds of changes that have occurred because of global warming, which is a certain kind of irony there because Texas pumps a lot of oil out of the ground and sends it around the world. Um, so it's payback time, I guess you could say. But, uh, this is happening all over the world. Uh, weather patterns are changing. Ecological systems are being significantly disrupted, and political and cultural systems are being significantly disrupted as a result. It's one of the reasons why we have people scrambling to try to get across from Africa and Asia into Europe, or from uh, Central and South America and other parts of the world across the Mexican border, and probably across the Canadian border too, but that, not paying a whole lot of attention to that. But a lot of upheaval going on. So um, the old systems don't seem to be applicable, including the traditions of Buddhism that have been around for literally thousands of years. Now, one of the things that's important to understand about the Buddha, he was an innovator. Uh, frankly, I think that's... You know, Jesus was an innovator. Uh, Muhammad was an innovator. It really, really important insights about how to be in the world that was challenging to the powers that be. Um, well, this is a time that is challenging to the powers that be in all kinds of ways. How are we going to deal with this? I think that the Four Noble Truths provides a really powerful conceptual structure that can help us as individuals and as communities and as 
social organizations to adapt. And we have to adapt. We have to change our lifestyles significantly and pretty quickly. Because otherwise it's going to get worse and worse and worse. So I'm being a little scary here, but I'm talking about the first noble truth again. And to some extent, second noble truth, craving and clinging. So this brings up um, what's called secular Buddhism. This is something that uh, um, Stephen Batchelor has advocated for, and I'm very much in agreement with his thinking on this. Uh, Secular Buddhism uh, involves a broad understanding, views that don't involve rites and rituals that are definitive functions of religious Buddhism. Significantly Western, phenomena and includes humanistic principles social justice um, equity things like that um, and scientific research that's supportive I talk about this a lot how, how uh, neuroscientific research and just basically psychological and uh, sociological research is validating a lot of what Buddhism has been been in, kind of embedded in in this brilliant scheme we call the Four Noble Truths from the very beginning. Our task is to study it, understand it, and figure out ways to reconfigure it in order to be able to be successful in our lives. And that's one of the aspects of secular Buddhism. There's an emphasis on cultivating skillful means for developing a meaningful life in a rapidly transforming world culture. And it requires different approaches to spirituality, more focused on spiritual development rather than achieving nirvana. That does not mean that the experience of Nirvana doesn't exist, but there's much more of an emphasis on how do you create a more holistic, adaptive, social life, pro-social life in this world. That's been my calling, actually. Um, I was a psychotherapist for decades and a meditation teacher for decades And this is my attempt to support this transformative process. Um, So, going further with this, um, the Noble Eightfold Path is described as having eight categories arranged in an iconic wheel. So there's eight spokes in this wheel that connect to the hub. And um, one of the values of a wheel is that it's used dynamically. You don't have a wheel because it's standing there. You have a wheel because you want to carry something on a cart. Right? So it's going to have to be weight-bearing. So each of the eight spokes 
carry some weight, but they're all coordinated. They're interactive and mutually supportive. At any given moment, one of those spokes might be carrying most of the weight. It's transferred from the rim of the wheel up to the hub. But then the wheel keeps turning. Now, if the cart is not moving, then the weight might be supported on just one spoke, in which case it's a pretty good idea for that spoke to be pretty strong, right? But I think it's a really good image. Now, one of the characteristics, I did not put this in my notes, but it's certainly part of my knowledge and what I've been teaching, the word dukkha, one of the, there's, there's several understandings of the etymology of the word dukkha. The one that I enjoy is that uh, when the word dukkha came into the Indo-Aryan culture, which was around in those days, um, it had to do with the hub of a wheel. And dukkha was described as poor fit between the axle of a cart and the hub of a wheel. If you have a poor fit, you're going to have a rough ride and the wheel's going to fall off from time to time. I think that's a pretty good description of dukkha. Right? Distress and confusion. So, um, that understanding, I think, is part of the, the brilliance of this notion of the Noble Eightfold Path. In fact, the Dharma wheel, as it's called now, has become uh, a part of the Indian national iconography. It's part of the Indian national flag, except it doesn't have eight spokes. It has, I don't know how many spokes, but there are a lot of them. But it's still a wheel, and it's called the Dharma wheel. Um, there are three subcategories, wisdom, virtue, and discipline. So, uh, I want to briefly review each of these categories, um, providing what I hope is a basic understanding. But this will be elaborated over subsequent talks over the next several months, actually. Um, but this kind of sets a, a precedent for that. Mm -hmm. I also want to create a context, talk about this in, in context, well I've already begun doing that, the context of how is this useful? How is this useful in our lives today? I mean this, this started 25 centuries ago. One of the things that drew me to it um, in 1982 was how brilliantly applicable it is to life today. And this was in the early 80s. Things were not anywhere near as messed up as they are now. Um, so that's one thing I really admire about this system. Is that it's very coherent. And one of the things you, when you talk about systems, you talk about the elegance of it. Which means that it really fits together. It's very applicable. And um, understandable. So I think that's one of the things that's really important about it. So first is the wisdom aggregate. 
And there are two spokes, two categories within that. Um, and it represents the philosophical and aspirational parts or components of the path. The first one is philosophical. The second category is aspirational. The first is, addresses the problem of, of clinging. And the second addresses, drains the power, depotentiates the power of craving. The first one is right understanding. Sometimes it's called right view. And it, it technically, traditionally means understanding karma. Not just karma um, conceptually, but actually being able to be aware of how it's playing out. The law of cause and effect. When you do things a certain way, there are going to be certain results. If you do them a different way, you're going to get different results. Um, so this is aspirational because when we study right understanding, there's a hope, there's an... We aspire to understand how our confusion operates. I don't want to go too far into this. I, I mean, I could talk about this all night, but that will um, diminish the importance of the review that goes on later. I'm just going to say that we have to realize directly in the moment the fabricated nature of our self-experience. We're making it up as we go along. And that doesn't mean we stop making it up as we go along, but how we make it up as we go along must be transformed. Uh, what's that transformation look like? Well, in terms of, of secular Buddhism, it means a more a well-integrated personality behaves in ways that are pro-social, environmentally wholesome, and manifest certain qualities of generosity and um, tolerance for diversity and so forth and so on. So that has to do with the, the cognitive part of wisdom, the thinking part, the belief system. The second um, category is right intention. And that's the ability to manage our emotionally impulsive reactivity in terms of our thoughts and our behaviors. So this is where the, the practice of mindfulness meditation is so important, which is another, it's, it's, that's in the discipline aggregate. But what it amounts to is every time we notice what pulls the mind away from the breath, and then simply redirect our attention away from that urgency back to the neutrality, the present moment characteristic of breath awareness. That's right intention. Letting go. Um, so as the mind capability to be non-reactive is cultivated, mind becomes more serene 
in circumstances. So our behaviors are much more capable of being truly rational and reasonable and uh, thoughtful and productive. doesn't mean we stop functioning in the world. We function in a very different way. We're training for that. So that's what wisdom is. The first part understands is dealing with how our selfing process operates from a cognitive perspective. And the second one addresses our emotional reactivity or what's called the affective, A-F-F-E-C-T-I-V-E, the affective elements of our experience. Then the next uh, subcategory is virtue. And there are three elements in that. So this represents pro-social aspirations and environmental responsibilities. As I was doing my research for this, I came across a quote from Albert Einstein that I think is pretty useful. And this is relative to the development, the onset of the Anthropocene era. Here's the quote. Science has provided the possibility of liberation for human beings from hard labor. But science itself is not a liberator. It creates means, not goals. Man should use science for reasonable goals. When the ideals of humanity are war and conquest, those tools become as dangerous as a razor in the hands of a child of three. We must not condemn man's inventiveness and patient conquest of the forces of nature because they're being used wrongly and disobediently now. Now, This last sentence I have italicized in my notes. The fate of humanity is entirely dependent upon its moral development. We have developed the ability to do incredible, magical things scientifically. But emotionally, things are getting out of hand. And that's really important to understand. Now, I cannot change the world, but I can do what I'm doing right now. This is what I call my sphere of influence. Talking to you all. And the choices that I make for my lifestyle. That I can do. And do it with clarity and serenity as much as I'm able to do it. Not get all bent out of shape by what I see in the news. And I don't ignore the news. I'm paying attention to what's going on. But I'm not being torn around by it. I'm deciding instead I'm going to do what I can in my sphere of influence. And I hope that you all make similar decisions as well. So, here are the virtue categories in brief. Right speech. Involves the cultivation of speech that's truthful, kind, and supportive of effective interpersonal communications. This also might include your own self-talk, your self-creating narratives, what I call the selfing story. And that's fostered by the same wholesome intentions described in the wisdom aggregate. 
understanding that my sense of self is fabricated. I'm making it up as I go along. Am I going to make it up through greed and hatred and ignorance? Or am I going to um, organize it around non-greed, which is generosity, non-hatred, which is kindness and compassion, and uh, wisdom, right understanding, rather than ignorance? Right action is the next uh, that function. It involves a person's behaviors, organized around the principle of harmlessness and devotion to the betterment of society and the environment. Also involves the ability to refrain from unwholesome actions. So, right inaction would also be in that. Now, the environment is not mentioned in traditional teachings at all. But the impact of humanity back then and up until the onset of the Industrial Revolution was not that significant. Although there's research now that um, uh, people who lived in South America uh, back then were not necessarily ecologically responsible. And that's one of the reasons, I'm, I'm sorry, I meant Central America, uh, the Yucatan and... and um, Guatemala and places like that where the Mayan civilization flourished. They may not have been all that responsible about how they managed their resources. So they only lasted several centuries before it all fell apart. Um, so um, ecological consideration is very important in terms of uh, the next um, function, which is right livelihood. And that's the traditional rendering. It means Right speech and right action are integrated into your daily life routines. Now, for most of human history, you know, your livelihood was not all that impactful on the environment, generally. Uh, and people traditionally lived in the same areas they grew up in, didn't travel very far, um, worked the same kind of trades that their ancestors did, but now, people travel all over the world. Um, I've had two different careers in my lifetime. I think most people have. Um, different careers at different stages of their lives. We live a lot longer now. So I prefer to use the term right lifestyle. Right lifestyle, what does that mean? It means how you live your life from the time you wake up in the morning till you go to sleep at night been significantly impacted by technology. One of the big problems of our era is sleep deprivation because of the Daily Show or, or the other nighttime events. People stay up too late, right? Um, so lifestyle also has to do with being a consumer and um, how we deal with, with uh, trash and garbage and so forth and so on. These have significant um, impacts on the world and on each other. Uh, another thing that I've talked about often is that, you know, um, there's an epidemic of obesity in the world right now, but particularly in the United States. And it is going to absolutely... Um, tear apart 
the whole healthcare system. It already is. Before the pandemic, things were getting weird. Um, people need to take better care of themselves. Part of my right lifestyle is I get plenty of exercise. I, I eat uh, with moderation and I eat wholesome foods, not junk foods. And I take good care of myself in that way. Um, people are socially isolated to a large extent. It's one of the biggest problems that came out of the pandemic, social isolation, which is very stressful. These are all lifestyle issues. And they're, they spin off of your self-talk and your actions. So one of the things that's important to do is to understand how you live your life. This is the wisdom part. How do you live your life? Is it wholesome or unwholesome? Are you taking care of yourself? What can you do to function differently in the world? In ways that are making the world a better uh, place rather than um, more difficult, right? more destructive. So everything I've said so far is aspirational. It's a good idea, concepts. How do you make that real? And this is to me is part of the, the brilliance of the Buddhist system. Meditation existed before the time of the Buddha. And he was well trained in meditation. But he turned it in ways that are important. There's still controversy about this, even in contemporary Western Buddhism about what, what, what did the Buddha really intend to do? Did he really intend to help people become more concentrated or did he really intend for people to become more insightful? I'm inclined toward the second one, to become more insightful. Concentration supports insight. Um, and this is where the right mindfulness part plays in, which we'll be talking about a lot. But one of the things that he did with I'm going to just kind of spin off here a little bit. Um, before he experienced this profound transformative event we call his awakening, when he became the Buddha, so to speak, uh, he was well trained in how to concentrate the mind. So this is a, a simile that I've used many times, and I think it, it works pretty well. There are light bulbs in this room. Electricity is going into them, heating the filament, generating energy that we call light. helps us to see better. But it's not all that efficient. You probably shouldn't touch the bulbs because you'll burn your fingers. Right? And so a lot of that energy is wasted. However, if you took that same amount of energy and you channeled it through a device called a laser... When it came out the business end, the energy would be very coordinated, very coherent, very powerful, a beam that um, has transformed culture, transformed society. Uh, our cell phones would not exist without lasers. Uh, the laptop I'm working with right now could not have been built without lasers. Very important. It's a whole discipline that's emerging now called photonics, which is the study of how the energy we call light is made useful. Uh, so anyway, 
he learned how to concentrate his mind to make this really pure beam of consciousness that was very stable, very powerful, and um, non-disrupted. But he figured out this really doesn't address the problem of dukkha. Because if you stop meditating, the world comes crashing back in again. People can become extraordinarily concentrated and come out of it and just collapse into being a hot mess. I think that's especially true today because being very concentrated also creates a great deal of sensitivity. There's serenity and equanimity, but at the same time, you're much more aware of things than you were before. So he did something that I think was pretty radical and potentially changed world history. Uh, What if you took a mirror and you put it in front of the laser beam and you projected it back onto the laser device so that you could analyze how does this thing work? How does it take raw energy and make it coherent? And what happens when it starts to mess up? And how can you make it work right again? That's what insight is. That's what vipassana is. Is the ability to have enough stability and non-reactivity in your attention to reflect back on your selfing process and make appropriate adjustments. Disregarding those particular mind states that are unwholesome and developing mind states, cultivating mind states that are wholesome. Right? So what I just described is the first of the discipline categories. Actually, I've described all three of them, but let me just kind of break that down a little bit. First one about concentration involves the, um, the ability to stabilize your attention. And um, you have to have enough stability so that the mind is not being jerked around a lot by craving and clinging. And then you bring mindfulness to put bear. And that's the mirror in front of the laser beam. Bring mindfulness to bear on the process. Reflects back on the selfing process. How we experience being in the world. And then right effort is the first one. First of the three. And right effort is the ability to channel the energy of attention. In ways that promote wholesomeness, function, functionality, um, wisdom, in terms of right understanding and right intention, and to channel energy of attention away from those mind states that are unwholesome, destructive, ineffective, self-defeating. So, those are the three elements of the discipline aggregate. Right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So we're going to be uh, going through each one of these. The talks next week is going to be focusing on uh, right understanding, first of the uh, um, categories, and exploring how that operates in more depth, the traditional understanding of it that I'm mentoring um, 
four women to be teachers. Some of you all have had experience with them. They're teaching before. So they're going to be alternating with me in terms of talking about these different categories. And we had a meeting recently in which we talked about the benefits of secular Buddhism. Rather than trying to really, you know, what I'm trying to do is to really dive into traditional Buddhist concepts and reorganize them, restate them. Which is like I said, what the, the Buddha did. He reorganized what was known in those days in ways that I think were just brilliant. And so I think a lot of contemporary people, Stephen Batchelor and, and other teachers and myself, are trying to figure out ways that we can understand the teachings without it becoming some kind of archaic, somewhat alien system. So I've done a lot of thinking about this, a lot of reading about this to uh, come to this. And so I think that's what my cadre of teachers are going to be doing, is we're going to be trying to explain the uh, uh, Noble Eightfold Path in ways that are, you know, honoring the traditional concepts and practices, but trying to use terminology and um, examples that help us to integrate it into our lifestyle. We cannot become Asian Buddhists. We can't. So what we have to do is take Asian Buddhism and make it our own. And I think that this is something that every culture has done. Uh, I was reading an article that was written by Stephen Batchelor and about secular Buddhism, and he used the one term in there, seculum, which is Latin, S-A-E-C-U-L-U-M. And basically what that means is the task of a particular generation or era. And I think that that's our task as individuals and culturally is to come to terms with how life is these days and figure out ways to live more wholesome lives, not, you know, revert back to living like people did in the 19th century, but figure out ways to live in this environment that are not quite so disruptive and destructive. So I think it has great implications and my my task, my calling is to explain this to people in ways that are hopefully interesting and inspiring. So now the opportunity presents itself for people to make comments or ask questions about what you've heard me say. Anybody? Okay. Brian? First of all, I look forward to reading your, your thesis or your book, you know, when you put all this together. <laughs> uh, and, of course, listening to it. Um, that said, I'm curious about the, the mental trainings. Um, and is there a, a difference that you see between, like, mindfulness of breath meditation and insight meditation? And in a lot of the meditation I've done myself and in groups in the past, it's um, 99% focus on breath meditation. But I wonder, is there a difference uh, when you're, is like a different modality for like insight meditation? No. Insight meditation 
does provide an opportunity to concentrate the mind, to stabilize your attention, to become less reactive. But it also can involve insight. The breath is changing all the time. And insight, <clears throat> or vipassana, <clears throat> is task is to realize directly, you know, to be aware of three things. One of them is called anicca, which is the transitory nature of subjective experience, changing all the time. The second is anatta, which is the absence of there being an enduring autonomous self. Now, because our subjective experience is changing all the time, there can't be an enduring autonomous self. And there are a lot more implications to this than just what I've said now. I mean, I've done several talks on this. Um, the third is, is uh, to understand the characteristics of dukkha. In other words, direct awareness of how craving and clinging operates and direct awareness of how to take the energy away from craving and clinging so that the mind is more wise, there's more wisdom. Right understanding and right intention is more workable. One thing that I just realized that I did not include in this talk is that um, one of the ways to understand the Noble Eightfold Path is to trans realize its transformation into what's called the Noble Tenfold Path. And so Noble Tenfold Path, right understanding, is transformed from a conceptual understanding to direct knowledge. So right understanding becomes direct knowledge or right knowledge. And uh, right intention or right aspiration becomes, um, uh, what is it? Um, maybe I have it in my notes here. I don't really have time to look it up. But basically, right intention becomes realizable. So there, there's a... The mind is freed up from the demands of, of craving. Doesn't mean you can't function. So just to, to go back to what I was saying earlier, mindfulness of breathing is what concentrates the mind. It's the laser. But the purpose of breath awareness is not breath. Purpose of breath awareness is the mind. So the mind is is the laser beam. The mirror is vipassana, insight, that reflects back on how the mind is operating, noticing when the mind is caught up with craving and clinging and disengaging from that. So uh, concentration and insight are like two sides of the same coin. Does that clarify it, Brian? It does. It sounds like, if I understand you correctly, that, that seeing the Anicca Anatta and dukkha is something that happens or you notice during mindfulness of breath meditation or you become aware of those things during that process. Yes, and uh, basically the, the, the way it works is that you, you see through dukkha first, then you use anicca 
to deconstruct anatta. And that's how, how, how the process works. You become more aware of the arising and passing away of mental phenomena and realize there really can't be an enduring self here because it's changing all the time. And that's what happens when the mind becomes really, really insightful because of the training, the discipline. And that's what happens on retreats. Going on retreats um, is something that I've done very diligently. I've probably been on 50 or 60 residential retreats of a week or longer over the last 40 plus years because I think it's that important. I'm not saying everybody should, but if you have a regular meditation practice, you're going to experience the benefits of that. Your life will be different in ways that are more wholesome for yourself and for society and for the environment. Other questions or comments? Steve? Thich Nhat Hanh has, of course, been dealing with all these issues of Western society for a long time as well. And 30 years ago, he wrote on the fifth precept, uh, Diet for a Mindful Society. And it's a it's a really interesting read. I'll, I'll put a link into the uh, into the chat. Um, I mean, in in that, I mean, you know, even though we're talking about thirty years ago, way be, before email and uh, you know just the messages of the internet, he 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 says, and I'll, I'll quote: "We can have a careful diet for our body." And we can also have a careful diet for our consciousness, our mental health. We need to refrain from ingesting the kinds of intellectual food that bring toxins into our consciousness. Yes. So, very, very much, you know, what, what you were discussing as yeah, well. Yeah, food is not just physical nutriment. Food is also cultural Um, by the way, for those of you, I just clicked on the URL that Steve put in the chat, and it's now on my um, computer. So I'm going to read it later, if you're interested. Other questions or comments? Uh, all right, Brian, again. Um, I thought I might have read somewhere about the Dharma wheel and the Eightfold Path and kind of the spokes of the wheel that some of them balance others. Is there a relationship between like where the spokes on the wheel fall and the ones that are across from them? Or does that might be something different? That's more about what are called the seven awakening factors okay. that, that, that have cross-referencing, cross-balancing. Gotcha. Um, I don't want to go into that right now. Okay. That, that's, so that's, that's a whole nother else. Dharma talk. Okay, gotcha. Any other questions or comments? Next week, the Dharma talk is going to focus on the wisdom aggregate, particularly right understanding. 
It's our custom at the end of these meetings to sit for a moment together in silence. But before we do that, I want to say that we're going to, I'm going to be teaching a one-day meditation retreat on Saturday, March 23rd at uh, a yoga center uh, in Apopka. And it's posted on the website. You need to register for the retreat beforehand. And uh, there's limited space for that. So if you're thinking of doing it, please sign up sooner rather than wait for later. All right, let's sit together. Thank you for your practice. I wish you well and hope that we're all reasonably safe and happy until the next time we have a chance to meet.